0: Today, we're going to learn more about creating in harmony with nature. What a concept, right? Hi, it's Cheryl Sitz with Mario Rosales running production beside me, and we welcome you back to another episode of Exploring Possibilities, a journey to remember who we are. Every podcast since 2012 is on our website at journeyofpossibilities.com. And you can also catch us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms, as well as youtube.com slash Cheryl Sitz. If you learn and grow through what we share here, show us a little love, won't you, at journeyofpossibilities.com slash support. That way we can keep bringing you these shows free of charge. Every little bit helps, and we appreciate you. Joining us in just a moment, Alan Watson Featherstone.
1: Hi, I'm Mario Rosales. I am the producer of Exploring Possibilities. I actually do IT work. I do website design. I do uh, remote support. You know, one of the things that I've been having recently, I've been working with people that are on Wix. And at the beginning, even I had the idea that Wix wasn't that powerful. But as I started working with it, I found out that there is so much more in there that we are not taking advantage of. We're not taking advantage of its database functionality. We're not taking advantage of their autoresponders. And a lot of this comes included for free in some of their packages. I've learned the system very well to the point that I can train you on how to do it. Or if you ask me to do some complicated task, I can design it for you within Wix. Then after I'm done, I give you the training on how to use it. And then if you have any troubles, you can always call me. Thank you. I am Mario Rosales and you can reach me at mariorosales.com. Let me help you out wherever I can. Thanks.
0: Alan Watson-Featherstone is an ecologist, speaker, nature photographer, and writer located in the Fintorn community in Northeast Scotland. In 1986, he founded the award-winning charity Trees for Life to restore the Caledonian Forest in the Scottish Highlands and the Dundragon Estate in Glenmoriston. He also founded Restoring the Earth Project to restore the degrading ecosystems. He regularly contributes articles to various publications and is a published natural history photographer. He is a global speaker, and we are so glad that he joins us now. Hi, Alan.
2: Hi, Cheryl. Nice to be on your show here with you, and hi to all the listeners out there.
0: I'm so glad to have you with us because I have to tell you, when I read the book, The Findhorn Garden Story... There will be a link to purchase that, a copy of that book on this podcast. Please do so. We get a small gratuity when you purchase through there, and it costs you no extra. This book has changed the way I interact with the natural world, and I'm so grateful for it and for you to be here to kind of dive into it with me.
2: Yeah, that's great. Thank you.
0: It's been a miraculous experiment, as they called it, right, that started out with just three or four people. I'm taking from the book here. It says, Eileen received direct guidance from the voice of God. Dorothy was communication with the devas. Rock had the ability to see and speak with nature spirits. And then Peter represented man, the practical creator of this garden, in a rather forbidding landscape. I don't know of any other famed place where man has worked with nature for such astonishing results. How did you get involved with the Finthorn community?
2: Well, that's a good question to start with. Thanks, Cheryl. So uh, I'm Scottish and grew up about 100 miles south of Findhorn but never heard of the community. And at the age of 21, I, in fact, at the age of 20, I left Scotland, I left Britain and started traveling. I was going off to see the world and to try and find my place and a sense of purpose. I'd had what I consider my spiritual awakening in my final year as a student, doing a degree in electronic engineering, which I knew I would never use, lost interest in it, but I got the degree anyway. And I had this sense of I needed to do something to make a positive difference in the world. I didn't know what it was. And I thought the best way I can find out is to go and explore the world and see if I can find something. So I was gone for three and a half years. I spent a lot of time in Canada. I spent a bit of time in the US, mostly in California, and I spent a year travelling in South America. I didn't find what I was looking for, but at the end of that trip I was in New York City waiting uh for a flight back to Scotland, staying with a friend, and I found this very same book that you described, The Findhorn Garden, as it was called in those days. And it kind of drew me almost magnetically in a little shop in downtown Manhattan in Greenwich Village. One of those shops, you know, it sells candles and a bit of Whole Foods and had one rack of books. And this book just pulled me. And uh, I looked at it. This is the black and white edition of the book. And there were lots of beautiful photographs of plants and nature. And although it was black and white, they seemed to have a radiance. There was some quality that shone through the plants. I had just begun to discover my own creative talent with nature photography then, so I was really drawn by this. And then I read some of the text accompanying the photographs, which talked about the people communing with the spirits of nature and receiving messages from the archetypal consciousness or intelligence within all nature. And that resonates were, I think many people have them in different ways seeing something in a book in this case it was like oh this is truth i know this i sense this inside myself although i had never been able to articulate it in such a way before so that was what brought me here it was the work with nature and um I arrived in 1978 at the age of 24, and uh, I came expecting to experience the Findhorn Garden, but it was actually the coldest winter Scotland had had in 25 years, and the garden was buried under a foot and a half of snow, so there was no chance to experience the garden. But I got something much better instead in some ways, which was learning to connect with my heart, to speak from my heart, and to act from that place. And that was a life-changing event, and that's why I came back to live here. So that was my introduction to Findhorn and um, that was in February 1978. I came back to live in October 1978 and I've been here ever since. So I spent most of my adult life here as part of this community and the work with nature has really been central to my my own life path, my journey through this community and the work that I've done. It
0: is some of the most spiritual work any of us will ever do, whether we're conscious of how spiritual it is or not. I remember I've had people that don't claim to any faith, any spirituality whatsoever say that nature is their church, jokingly. But nature really is our connection to the spiritual realm in ways I don't think many of us have begun to yet understand. The popularity of working with the the Deva realm and the elemental realm has kind of faded over the years. I think at one time we did that more consciously. Now we tend to use chemicals and pesticides to kill what we don't want and then try to put in more of what we do. We've really taken dominion over nature in a way that cripples nature from actually thriving and being in harmony with us and us with it. And I'm so glad that this has inspired you to do more work around that. Would you like to speak to that a little bit?
2: Yes, I think for me, um, what I often say to people these days is my journey of learning to deep, deeply connect with nature for myself is about reclaiming some of my lost heritage as a human being. And I grew up in Scotland, you know, which is it's not the richest country, but it's not poor. My family weren't rich, but we weren't poor. We never lacked for anything. On a physical level, we're always comfortable, but I feel like I, like most people in the Western world and much of the rest of the planet today, grew up deprived of one of the fundamental birthrights of what it means to be human on planet Earth, and that is daily connection with wild nature. Now there still are people who have that, uh, the indigenous people who live in the Amazon or Borneo, the Bushmen in South Africa, uh, a few others, Um, but most of us have lost that. We've isolated ourselves from nature. We've built towns and cities. We surround ourselves by concrete and steel and glass and tarmac, uh, artificial light, lots of music and sounds that serve to disconnect us. And I personally believe that in the past, all humans had this regular connection this rapport with the spirit of nature and we've lost it that's been our loss it's not just nature that has suffered from what we've done to it we have suffered hugely too we've created a sense of separation and the sense of impoverishment. Many people are beginning to rediscover the wonder of, you know, a sunset at the beach or a quiet walk in the forest or the song of a bird or the view from a mountain top. And we're discovering that that nourishes something very fundamental and deep in all of us. It connects us with our source because we all come from the same source. Um, we 're all made of the same atoms and molecules, and those atoms and molecules circulate over time when my when I die, my body will release its atoms and molecules and um, they 'll be used by other organisms. so we are part of this interconnected web of life and the illusion the madness of our modern society is that we deny that we pretend it doesn 't exist so my journey has been one of rediscovery of this lost birthright this Fundamental heritage of what it means to be human on this wondrous planet with millions of species and hugely complex ecological relationships. Um, it's a never ending exploration and a great joy to see what's on our planet and also to work to help protect and restore that before it all gets lost and destroyed.
0: I love the way you share that. I see why you're a global speaker, by the way. This is fabulous because. I find myself in conversation with people trying to explain what I've learned through the, the Findhorn story, saying, you know, it's, it's about working in harmony with, not powering over or, or conquering over things, but working in harmony with. But as you say, it's actually a birthright. We're depriving ourselves. We're not just harming nature with these chemicals and this way of life. Thank you for bringing that out how would you recommend the average person for those that listen in the city that go to their eight to five job and then come home and hit the button and drive into their garage and close the button behind them and go into their box. And they're hardly outside at all. If at all, how do you recommend they begin to reconnect to what you're calling wild nature when they don't even have tamed nature in their
2: lifestyle? Well, I think that's kind of, I guess there are people who live like that. It's quite extreme in some ways. I think many people have some nature, at least in Britain, you know, we have a tradition of gardens here, so not everybody, um, but most people uh, will have a garden. They might grow vegetables, you know, there's a lot of um, people who are gardeners in this country. Other people have house plants, so it's a question of finding what have you got that you can access regularly, and then it's about building up a relationship. Um, that's what ecology is. Ecology is the study of relationships and we've severed and broken and ruptured the relationship between ourselves and the rest of nature and this started for me before I came to Findhorn when I was living in Canada in the 70s my girlfriend and I we had some house plants and I'd never grown house plants before and I remember you know just looking at them and um, these were spider plants which many people have and um, I was able to by looking at them every day I could see they'd grown a bit from the day before and that gave me a sense of increasing wonder and interest go and look at what have they done next day and so forth and um, you know I could see they needed water and I began to develop a relationship there a connection and of course what I began to discover then but it didn't become conscious until after coming to Findhorn is that plants you know whether they're in a garden or in a house plant pot don't sunlight to live. They're being grown in an artificial situation. They've been taken out of their native habitat and although they'll grow there, they thrive much better when they're in the presence of an additional quality and that is human love. And many people I think experience this in different ways. Uh, Lots of people have pets and they love their pet dog or their pet cat or their pet rabbit or whatever it is. Uh, Anybody who's a parent knows this with their children more alive when they're raised and surrounded in an atmosphere of love and the knowledge i've come to from being here at Findhorn all these years and working closely with nature is that um, nature everything in nature responds to this human quality of love so a starting point then for anybody is find something in nature that you can give your love to if it's a house plant, if it's your pet, if it's a tree on the street near where you are, or your town park, everybody has something like that near them. Go and start making a regular connection. Look at the tree through the seasons, watch the flowers as they come up in the spring, and the insects that come to pollinate them. Begin to establish a relationship and a connection, and that is where it grows from. And it's like anything else, This is latent within all of us. It's part of our birthright, our heritage. But for many people, the lid stays shut on it all the time. But if anybody takes the lid off and begins to open it, it's like this whole uh, wondrous flow that can emerge from there. And one thing leads to another. If you're looking at a flower and you see, well, there's a bee. What's it doing? It's pollinating. Where is it going to the next plant? And you can follow those threads and begin to reweave yourself back into Uh, a conscious participation in an ecosystem and we don't have that most of us at this stage you know we're completely cut off and disconnected from ecosystems and all we view them as is sources of raw materials that we can uh, process and make fancy consumer products with and then we dump our rubbish in them at the end and that's that's the extent of people's relationship so it's, it's changing that transforming that into the the web of interconnectedness and the circularity where we're not just receiving something from nature, but we're giving something back in a conscious way. And that can start with the love of our hearts. Well, and
0: as you mentioned to me earlier that you had a community meditation to do after this, this conversation, for us to even go out in nature to be quiet and still and meditate in whatever form we do for 30 minutes, 15 minutes. I know for some people, they live very busy lives. They have their kids are involved in events after school. And so they they go to work, they come home, they're busy with the kids, then they all tuck into bed and they may only get outside on weekends. So even to find a way to weave connection with nature into their daily lives at some place that can bring them back to peace and stillness amidst all the chaos is a gift we all deserve to give ourselves. It's not about just taking care of the planet. It's about, as you say, this restoring this symbiotic relationship and connection that we've severed.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think um, for people who lead busy lives, it's still possible to do that. Uh, For example, at the moment, I live in an ecologically designed house here at Findhorn. I designed it with an architect. And I've got a passive solar conservatory on the south side of my house. And I've got 23 tomato plants growing in pots there at the moment. And I water them every day. We've got sun, so they need water every day. And they grow. And I can watch it. And it's a source of joy and wonder. And if I've got a busy day, I may not have time to go for a walk to the beach or something like that, but I do make those two minutes to look at my tomato plants and to connect with them and to water them and to give them a bit of love. So it's a question of priorities and You know, many people are caught up in the busyness and the hecticness of our daily lives, but that is really the world of illusion. And I think people who immerse themselves fully in that, they never really find a deep sense of nourishment and satisfaction. It's always one more gadget or one more piece of clothing or the latest film or latest music, and it's there for a while, and then it's on to something else. Um, But the real contentment, I believe, comes from having a meaningful connection with um, something other in nature, whether that's a partner, a human partner or a plant or an animal and fostering that and developing that over time. And that is long lasting.
0: That's beautiful. Talk a little bit about how you went from this daily lifestyle shift of your own into bigger restorative projects, the fuel to say, hey, I'm going to found a non and we're going to make a change in the world to help bring this balance back and initiate reconnection between man and, and nature. How did that fuel for you at the beginning and where has that gone since?
2: Well, thanks. That's a great question. I mean, just to give you a little bit of brief history as background, I came to Findhorn in 1978 to live And joined the community. And I worked in one of the community kitchens, first of all, for a year and a half. And I I was actually the community baker. I was baking 120 loaves of bread four mornings a week for our community, which was wonderful because bread is very, it's the staff of life. And it's something when you're working with the dough, it's alive. Um, so it's very meaningful. But I was sharing a room in those days, as everybody did at Findhorn then, with somebody who was working in the garden. And he kept seeing me getting these houseplants that I would rescue from local shops in town where they were going to throw out because they thought they were dying. I would say, no, no, I'll take that. I will nurse it back to life. And uh, he saw this and he said, oh, we've got to get you out into the garden. So I joined one of the garden departments here and worked there for four years, which is where I really started to learn to give something back to nature. Up till then, I'd always appreciated hiking in the mountains or being in a big forest, came back refreshed and nourished, but I never stopped to think, what can I give back? So the garden was a time about learning to give something back and starting to connect deeply and understand the communication that comes from nature constantly to all of us. Now, I don't receive deva messages the way Dorothy McLean did. I don't see the nature spirits like Rock did, who you mentioned earlier, but my own connection with nature is an intuitive one and I get feelings and I can see things sometimes you know, that need to change or need to happen. So after a year here, I went out to this place called Glenafric, which is uh, one of the remnants of the Caledonian forest. There's only about 1% of the old forest left in Scotland and Scotland is famous for its, its beautiful green rolling hills with not a tree in sight. In fact, that's a ruined landscape because most of the country was forested originally. We've cut them down. And because we keep too many sheep and deer on the land, no new trees have been able to grow. So I went to this place called Glen Affric in 1979 on a Sunday trip organized by some community members. And driving up there in a minibus... The road winds up near a little river and it was tumbling waterfalls and there were these wonderful old trees draped in lichens hanging over the water. And I thought, wow, this is like Canada. I never knew there was anything like this in Scotland at all. It really touched me. I grew up in Scotland thinking the bare Hills were natural. So I began going out to this place, Glen Affric, fairly regularly as soon as I had access to a car, which I shared with some other people. And I began getting to know it because it really touched me and it felt like, oh, this is this is a bit of what I felt when I was in Canada and South America, where there are still intact, fully functioning ecosystems. We don't have those in Scotland, but this was kind of the closest to it. So when I was out there, I began to notice that the trees were all old 200 years or more. And they were dying naturally of old age, nothing wrong with that. But they were not being replaced by any new trees because of this problem with deer and sheep eating every seedling that germinated. And that had been happening for 200 years. So we we had what I've termed the geriatric forest. It was like going to an old people's care home. Um, These venerable old trees at the end of their long lives, 250 years or more, dying and no new life coming to take their place. And imagine in the human world if that's all we had, if we only had old people's homes and there were no schools and no primary schools and no nurseries because there were no children. Wow. And I got the sense of this is so wrong, Mm -hmm. you know. And I could see these old trees and I could see, you know, um, them on the rocky outcrops, the few that had survived, you know, out of reach of the deer. And I didn't get any message, but I had this feeling of they're calling out for help, you know. They should be all over this landscape, but they're not able to. And it was as though they were saying, come on, Alan, you can see what's going on here. Do something. Help us. We can't do anything about this ourselves. And somebody in the early 60s, a visionary forester working for the Forestry Commission, which is our equivalent of the Forest Service in the US, had fenced off an area to keep the deer and sheep out. And hundreds of thousands of trees had grown spontaneously by themselves. No need to plant anything. They were the natural progeny of the old trees. And as soon as there was no deer to eat them, they just started to grow and the whole forest recovered. And I kept getting this thought of, they fenced that area, why haven't they fenced these other areas? They're the Forestry Commission, that's their job to look after forests, why are they not doing this? Or the Nature Conservancy Council, which was the government conservation agency at the time, they're responsible to look after Scotland's nature, why are they not doing anything about this? And I kept getting this feeling over a period of years that Somebody needs to do something about this because these old trees are dying. And if nothing happens, in another 20, 30, 40 years, they'll all be gone. And once they're gone, the seed source is gone and it'd be much harder to get it recovered. So this happened for uh, two or three years. And um, in 1986, I was the main organizer for a big conference we hosted at Findhorn. It was a gathering, we called it, One Earth, a call to action. It was the year of the Chernobyl nuclear accident in, uh, in what was then the Soviet Union. And the environment was very much up in everybody's awareness. And the event was based on the the premise that we know what the problems of the world are. We knew then, we know now. Uh, but we also knew then, as we know now, what the solutions are. But there was no will or commitment to implement those solutions. Everybody wanted to do business as usual, make more profits and everything else. So our event was designed to address that. The gap was, um, we know the problems, we know the solutions, but they're not being put into practice. There's no will, there's no commitment to action. So we called it One Earth, A Call to Action. And we had 250 people plus community members. Our uh, conference venue was full with 300 folk in it. And in the final session, we asked anybody who felt inspired No compulsion at all, but anybody who wanted to, to stand up in front of 300 people and make a commitment to do something positive for the planet. So that was my decisive moment. I stood up there and said, I have seen this problem. Somebody needs to do something about it. I commit myself to launch this project to restore the Caledonian forest. And that was quite a, quite a significant thing to do, standing in front of 300 people making a commitment like that. Yeah, with no
0: idea how you were going to do it, right? Just, exactly. I'm going to do this. I had this. no
2: idea how to do it. Plus, I had no training or background in ecology or forestry. I had no access to land. I had no resources. Um, on a physical level, I had nothing to help me accomplish a hugely ambitious goal like that. But I had the most important thing I had this deep connection with myself from being here at Findhorn. By that time, I'd lived here for eight years, so I'd worked a lot on deepening my connection with spirit within me and trusting that and also deepening my connection with nature. And that experience was not just about deepening it, but it was like if I listen to my heart and act on my heart and what I'm really being called to do from that deepest sense of self, the world, the universe will support me. That is my purpose. That's why I'm here on Earth to fulfill a spiritual purpose, which is growing as a human being. But it's also serving the planet at this time, serving the transformation of humanity and the healing of our world. So um, I made that commitment. And it took nearly three years for the project to get underway because I had to educate myself. I had to make contact with landowners. I had to set up, you know, an organization, get volunteers, get money, all that sort of thing. So I was very impatient in those days. I wanted it all to happen straight away. But I was still thinking with a human timescale then. Mm. I've had to learn to think like a tree and act on the time frame of a forest. And for a Scots pine, Scots pines, the oldest one in Scotland is known to be 550 years old. There's one just across the North Sea in Norway that's over 750 years old. We probably had ones that old in Scotland before we lost most of them. They were cut down. So for th- a tree that can live that long, three years is nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the blink of an eye. So I had to learn patience. I had to learn to be like a tree in a way because a tree's success comes when a seed germinates and it puts its roots down and gets its roots established well in the soil before much upward uh, visible growth takes place. The initial bit is getting rooted. So for me it was the same thing with this project when I look back now. It was the spiritual roots, uh, educating myself, understanding what could I do and how would I go about doing that. And the first significant action happened in 1990, I managed to get agreement with the Forestry Commission, who owned this area, Glen Glenafric, and at that time they had no money. Their conservation budget had been cut, uh, so they had an interest in restoring the forest, but no money for it. I'd raised enough money, but no land to do it on, so we came together as rather unlikely partners and fenced off an area of 125 acres and 50 hectares and that area had we had a survey i had a survey done by a student before the fence went up and he found there was an estimated 100,000 pine seedlings already there getting eaten by deer it's the natural progeny of the old trees and the average height was um, about four inches high and the average age was 9.9 years old. That showed how intense the grazing pressure had been. So after 10 years they were only four inches high. So we knew if we could keep the deer out we would get a whole new forest growing there without the need to plant a single tree. So that fence was put up in 1990. We had a big sort of media event with a a prominent environmentalist in Britain at the time. We got onto both television channels in Scotland. We got into the newspapers. I got radio interviews. And that was really the critical point, because up till then, it had just been me as a single person uh, in this alternative community with this crazy idea. Here, (laughs) Working with the Forestry Commission all over the media uh, with a lot of support, and it's like you know the seed had taken root and had begun to grow and flower. And of course, as soon as there's something visible like that, as soon as spirit and a positive vision becomes manifest, tangible in physical form, it's very magnetic. Because we all have a hunger for positive things. We see what's going on. We know in our bones, in our hearts, all the bad stuff that's going on in the world. But there's a hunger for positive things. So whenever something pops up, it's like, wow, a lot of people go there. Yes, that's great. How can I help? How can I support it? And many people, I think, have this experience now um, when they do something that really comes from their heart, that embodies love and care and respect for the earth. People want to line up and volunteer or donate or publicize or uh, do interviews like this podcast. You know, I get lots of these requests because there is a hunger and there's a need out there.
0: Yes, there so that, is. That was
2: how it really started. From my time in the garden, deepening my personal connection with nature and then going out into the Scottish Highlands and learning to read the message of the land there. Why are those trees only growing on rocky outcrops? Why are there no young trees? And understanding the message that, well, there's no young trees because they're all getting eaten, and on the rocks they're safe, the deer can't reach them there. Understanding things like that in a very simple way was how I began to develop my relationship with the ecosystem. And I call myself an ecologist, and I know the Caledonian forest very well. I can identify many species from the trees and the deer to the fungi to the um, aphids and the springtails and all the microorganisms. I, I really know it very well. And I have no academic training in it. I've never studied it. I read a few books. I talk to people. I go out with experts and I absorb it by osmosis. And of course, that is what people used to do in the past. It's still what the indigenous people still do. The fundamental change that has to happen in our human culture is that we all have to recognize and start to live as indigenous to planet Earth.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. Ellen, let me just ask you about something while we're on the subject of how we're reconnecting to earth. And first off, thank you for sharing. I, I just want to reiterate something that you said, you know, you've raised basically encapsulated how to achieve a dream. You had a vision. You started out saying somebody really needs to do something about this. And then <laughs> I've been there. It's like, oh, I'm the somebody. So you stood up and you made this wild declaration And you committed to it with a passion and the universe showed up and gave you all that you needed to make that happen. That's the way we achieve our dreams. Thank you for sharing that impassioned story of how we can all be more like a tree, know when to be patient, know when to take action. Beautiful story. You say you intuitively connect with the nature realm. I know after reading the story, I was like, wow, I wish I could see them. I wish I could hear them. I wish I had that clarity or had those vivid dreams. I'm intuitive like you are. So I get the messages kind of randomly. First, we have to stop and be still, right? And listen.
2: Absolutely. And then for me, it's a question of paying attention and understanding how is nature communicating to me? And I sometimes think I'm not sensitive enough like Dorothy McLean was or Rock was to get the, the very clear, you know, explicit messages in meditation or to see the beings. But things happen to me in nature. And whereas in the past I would maybe have just um, dismissed them as just something that happens, I've learned to pay attention. It started in the garden here uh, very simply with um, a plant we have, I don't know if you have it in Texas, you might well do, the stinging nettle. Is that familiar to you? Oh yeah, yes we do. (laughs) Yeah, so stinging nettles, you know, uh, I was working as a vegetable gardener and you know when you put compost in the soil, you enrich the soil, it creates ideal conditions for nettles to grow. So there were always nettles in my vegetable beds and As a child, there'd be nettles growing around in the woods behind my house, and I used to get stung, so I hated nettles, and I would always beat them down with a stick. So when I started working in the garden here at Findhorn, and there were nettles, I I had to cultivate a different attitude towards nettles. So I began to read a bit about them and understood that, yeah, they're actually very good for the compost. You can make a liquid compost out of soaking them in water. Uh, They're good to eat. You can make nettle soup. They don't sting at all, but they're nourishing. But I began to discover something more significant about the nettles, which was about key to developing my own relationship with nature. Because when I was working in the garden, sometimes I could work, you know, for a morning, weeding the nettles without ever getting stung. There is a way to pick them. Uh, I don't wear gloves because I want to feel the earth. Uh, If you pick a nettle right at the base of the stem where it comes out of the soil, there's no stinging hairs there. And if you pick it up very carefully, put it in the compost bucket, don't get stung. So I could do that. But other days, um, within five minutes, I'd have red spots all over my hands from being stung. And what I discovered, what I observed was there was a difference in me between those two experiences. Sometimes I would work in the garden by myself, and I'd be fully focused, paying attention, and I'd look at every nettle when I pulled it out. I wouldn't get stung. Other days, I'd have a, a visitor, a guest to the community working in the garden, because many people come and they want to help in the garden. So they've got lots of questions. So I'd be having a conversation with somebody while I was working, and I wouldn't be giving my full attention to my work and to my hands. And those were the days I got stung. So what I discovered was that the nettles were actually giving me feedback. They were like a mirror showing me whether I was fully present in the moment, paying attention to what I was doing. Or was I actually somewhere else with my thoughts and half of my consciousness and my awareness in a conversation? So the nettles were communicating with me. Mm-hmm. and that is the type of relationship i have when something happens like that you know when i see something especially if it repeats it's like okay there's a message here there's a communication here yeah i need to understand what that is i had the same thing with insects flies came along one day and started buzzing around me when i was digging cooked food into a trench in the ground for composting because if you cook food in a compost heap it attracts rats it's not good So I was doing this and um, I was also responsible for a group of guests who were planting leeks in an area of the garden and uh, I would showed them how to do it and where to do it and uh, I then got on digging this cooked food in, which was not a pleasant job, you can imagine it was several days of old cooked food, rather smelly and didn't look nice and I just got into doing it and um, at a certain point some flies came and started buzzing around me and uh, You know, I was new in the community, and they'll say, okay, flies, I don't like flies. I'd been in the north of Canada where flies are a nightmare, biting flies. Um, But uh, how can I love these flies? I couldn't really imagine myself loving the flies. But I noticed that they were flying around my head. They weren't flying around um, the cooked food in the ground, which is what I thought they would come for because of the bad smell. And at a certain point, one of them landed on the corner of my eye. And I had to stop what I was doing, let go of my spade for digging the compost in and brush the fly out of my eye. In the course of doing that, I noticed the guests, uh, one of whom had gone on and planted uh, the leeks was she was planting that day in an area which was not uh, for the leeks, it was for a different crop. So I had to go and tell her and explain, sorry, you've, I must have miscommunicated. Those leeks have to come out and go into this other section. I got her sorted out and then I went back to my work with the compost and I started digging this food in again and after a minute or two I suddenly realized there's no flies and I had to stop because I suddenly realized these flies did not come by chance. They came for purpose, on purpose, with a reason. I was in my own space not doing my job properly of you know, looking after these guests and the flies came and buzzed around my head and it was as though, hey Alan, get out of your head, look around, you've got good eyes. Didn't get the message so one of them dared to land in the corner of my eye and you know it was like okay and then I had to get it out of the way and in the course of doing that I saw what was happening
0: that's a it was great a story
2: a humbling experience to think that flies could have something to teach me
0: mm-hmm. Well, and you and you point to, think- to the fact that all of nature is having a conversation with us all the time. What we find annoying, we need to reframe that because there's really some information in that for us. There's It's a conversation.
2: That's right, yeah. And what I discovered through things like this is when I was out in the garden, it wasn't just me doing things to the garden, whether it was weeding the vegetable bed or digging this compost in or watering or whatever it was. The garden was also doing things to me. was helping me to reconnect, helping me to grow, to deepen my understanding. And it was with that background then, going out into the Scottish Highlands, that I felt this land calling for help and that I, I feel when I travel to other parts of the world. And it's the same message, you know, it's coming all over the planet right now. And that was also why I founded this thing called the Restoring the Earth Project, because In the 1990s, when the Caledonian forest was beginning to recover through my efforts and some other people as well, I suddenly realized that if nothing changes, this forest will not have a future. The trees are growing now, but we've got this culture that is dedicated to exploiting every resource on the planet. And once they've chopped down the Amazon and Borneo and the Congo and Siberia, There's no more trees left there. They can say, oh, look, there's that forest that's been growing in Scotland for the past few decades. We can go and cut those trees down. We can't just address this on a Scotland level. We have to actually do it on a planetary level. We've inherited a depleted, wounded, impoverished world from previous generations. Deserts have spread on many continents. Western civilization is said to have begun in the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia and the Middle East. When you go there today, it's all desert. That's what the civilization's left behind. So um, it needs to be addressed on a global level. And I've had this picture on my wall uh, for many, many years. It's one of the pictures taken by the Apollo 8 astronauts um, when uh, they were out in space looking back at the Earth. And it's a picture, a beautiful picture of the Earth, this blue and white sphere. And you can see the, co- the continent of Africa outlined on it because there's not much cloud over much of Africa because it's mostly desert. And uh, for many years I'd seen that I thought, what a beautiful image. And then suddenly one day I realized, hey, the most obvious thing is deserts, desertified land. This is the Earth's voice. This is the Earth's call for help. So out of that came this idea that we need to. Take what we've been doing here at Findhorn with restoring the Caledonian forest, what people in the community of Oroville and uh, India are doing for their tropical dry evergreen forests there, uh, what people are doing in Costa Rica. We need to scale that up and do it all over the world, not just for, co- uh, for forests, but for uh, coral reefs, for mangroves, for prairies and grasslands, uh, for all the different ecosystems that we're destroying at the moment. And this really is the future. Um, I don't know if you've come across a book by um, Daniel Quinn called Ishmael, who won the Turner Tomorrow Award in about 1991.
0: Fabulous book. Fabulous book. You know it.
2: Great. Yes. So in it, um, the, the, the narrator answers an ad which says, teacher seeks pupil, must have an earnest desire to save the world, apply in person. When he goes to the address, it turns out that the teacher is a gorilla who presents a gorilla's eye view of the world. And Ishmael, the name of the gorilla, um, describes humans as two types, the leavers, the hunter-gatherer people who left the world pretty much as they found it and left very few traces of themselves. And then after the rise of settled agriculture, the takers, the people who began to take things away from the rest of nature. We put up our fences and said, this land is ours, this crop is ours, don't you dare come in here and eat it. Don't you take our deer or our sheep or we'll shoot you wolves. And we've been doing that ever since. So there's no future for leavers even if we wanted to the planet cannot support 7.7 billion hunter gatherers there's also no future for takers because we're taking everything, we're taking too much we have to become something new and this is not in the book this is my extrapolation from it we have to become the givers yes Now, I still take from the earth. I eat food every day, which comes from the earth. I wear clothes, which have come from the earth. So I have to take something. But my task is to make sure that I give back more than I take. And that's what we need to learn to do as a species now. We need to learn to give back life, to give back space to other species, and to give our love. Those are the three things that we each can give in our own way, whether it's to a houseplant, a pet the tree in the town park, or restoring an ecosystem like I've been involved in.
0: That's a perfect place for us to wrap up. We need to be giving back. And if each of us will just ask, how can I give back in my own way? How can I start the giving and receiving cycle here, right where I'm at today, and expand that a little more all the time? We'll get that world that we
2: want back. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the exciting thing. We each have the potential to do that. We need to listen to our hearts and say, what is it that I really love? What is it that each of us really loves? It could be an animal, it could be a bird, it could be a landscape, a coastline, and find a way to express that love in tangible, physical form. Go and pick up rubbish from your local beach, or clean up your woodland, or plant a tree, or... um, Adopt a pet that's been uh, abandoned by somebody else or love your houseplants. Find a way. It's really important to make the love manifest. That's one of the key principles of the Findhorn community. Work is love in action. Work is not a chore. It's not a drudge that is done to earn money. It is an expression of the heart. And we each have things in our hearts that we love, and we need to make that manifest now. And that, to me, is how we're going to solve the problems of the world and restore planet Earth to its richness and diversity and abundance for the future.
0: Thank you so much for all that you do, the voice that you share with the world and the passion that you share. You're an inspiration and a real wake up call for all of us. I really appreciate you. And thanks for taking time to be with us today.
2: Oh, that's my pleasure. This is part of my purpose. It's why I'm here at Findhorn is to speak my truth and share it as widely as possible. So my thanks to you for giving me the opportunity to do this. And I hope that it's meaningful for your listeners.
0: Absolutely. I can't imagine that it wouldn't be. And let us know what you thought of the show today. You can do that anytime at journeyofpossibilities.com. We appreciate you giving us a listen. We hope that you found it rewarding. And we look forward to you joining us next time on Exploring Possibilities.